This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you haven't decided yet who you're going to vote for in the federal election, turns out you are not alone. A new Ipsos poll out this morning finds quite a few people remain undecided, or maybe they just don't want to vote. Let's talk to Sean Simpson about that. The vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs joins us now. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Tell me about these undecided voters. Mm. Well, it's uh, one eight Canadians say that they, they haven't made up their mind yet. Uh, in terms of who they are, uh, they actually skew two to one women uh, over men. Much, uh, many more women than men say that they haven't made up their mind. They're a little bit younger. About a quarter of them have kids in the household. So uh, it, it's a group of people that's, that's pretty well defined. And that means that they're targetable by the parties, meaning that I think tonight in the uh, English language debate, we'll see the leaders reaching out to these undecided voters uh, to try to woo them because in such a close election race, every vote counts. So are these undecided voters or are they non-voters? Well, I think they're maybe non-voters in disguise. Uh, you know, getting close to the end of the campaign now, less than two weeks uh, to go, and if you haven't made up your mind yet, uh, you know, chances that you actually do make up your mind and, and feel strongly enough about a candidate to go out and vote uh, are maybe, uh, those chances are maybe diminishing. Uh, we know that uh, half of them say that we shouldn't be having a campaign during an election. We know that the majority say that they don't really like any of the parties that they have to choose from. And they are also very concerned about going out and voting in person during the pandemic. They have concerns about their safety more so than the general population. So it almost seems to me that some of these undecided voters may be looking for an excuse uh, yeah. to stay home, maybe looking for a reason to say, you know, I think it may be okay that I sit on the sidelines this time out. I find that so fascinating because I think you're right too. diving a little bit deeper into the details of this is that they do sound like they're looking for an excuse not to vote because 78% of them actually said they don't know, this is of the undecided voters, they don't know which party has the best plan for the future, believing they're all the same. They haven't actually mm. checked out the parties. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and if you look at the general population, it's only about a third of Canadians overall who say they don't yet know who has the best plan for a post-COVID future. So the fact that it's three quarters of undecided voters, uh, you know, there's something going on there. And you may be right. It's just that, that some of them may not have put the effort into looking at the platforms, doing a little research, watching the news, perhaps uh, um, reading, reading uh, you know, articles about the leaders. Uh, and, uh, and, and as a result of that, they remain undecided. Now, they have concerns, uh, and, and in particular, undecided voters are most concerned about issues of affordability uh, in, in two different ways. One, this kind of day-to-day, -day, you know, gasoline, food prices, etc. Uh, but the, the other area of affordability they're concerned about is housing. 
Uh, and, and of course, that is an important uh, topic uh, in, uh, in, in this election campaign. What are the leaders going to do to make it more affordable to buy a home for first-time homebuyers? So, again, tonight in the debate, uh, I, I think that we'll see the leaders touching on, you know, their plans for a post-COVID future, their plans to tackle affordability, and maybe one or two goodies that are particularly targeted at women to see if they can sway a couple of percentage points in their favor. Is it normal, like you said, that the majority of these undecided voters are women? Is that what we usually see at the, at, during an election campaign? Uh, not that I can recall. Um, I mean, sometimes there's always a, a little bit of a skew uh, more towards women, just simply because th- there are more women than men in Canada. Uh, but in this election campaign, that it's two-thirds women, one-third men, uh, is is perhaps a little bit surprising, and, and I, have a, I have a hypothesis for that, okay. uh, as you might expect. Uh, <laughs> so, in 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 2015, and, and to maybe a lesser extent, 2019, Justin Trudeau did very well at the ballot box among women. They were a key group for him uh, in 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 right. sending him to 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 Ottawa. Now, um, this particular group of undecided voters, not quite as enamored with the prime minister as uh, as you might expect. He's got lower approval ratings on some personality traits and assessment that we tested. He does worse among these undecided voters than among the general population. The problem is, is that they haven't yet found an alternative. They don't really like uh, just uh, Aaron O'Toole, uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh, perhaps, you know, let's see how he does in the debates, maybe like him personally, but not, not the party so much. So, you know, they, 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 they're they lukewarm on the prime minister, which is where they had, you know, put their put their support previously. And now they don't know where to go. And if you don't know where to go, then you just stay home, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. But with this close now to an election, less than two weeks to go, how influential could these undecided slash non-voters be? If they decide to go out and vote, they could definitely have an impact, right? Well, they could have an impact. Yeah, I mean, you've got twelve or thirteen percent of them, uh, and uh, if if uh, if the horse races is tight going forward as it is now, we have the Conservatives up by three points. All you need is a couple percentage of them to go out and vote, sort of en masse for a particular uh, a particular party. Uh, so if 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 they end up voting as a block, uh, meaning. Uh, uh, casting their ballot similarly uh, yeah. across all undecided voters, they could really have uh, have an impact on this election campaign. And I, I think, you know, despite their relatively small numbers, despite the fact that many of them will stay home, I think you're still going to see the leaders trying to reach out because they can really have an impact. Oh, wow. So interesting. Sean, thank you. It's been my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, tonight is the big English language TV debate for the federal leaders in this election campaign. Are you going to be watching or listening? That's my question. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Raji Silhal is with us this morning. Raji, are you going to be watching tonight or listening tonight? Good morning, Simi. Yes, I will be watching. But I've been wondering if people are watching the debates less than they used to than in the past. And I feel like I've seen a lot of evidence of that being the case. Uh, I think a lot of people are basing their opinions off of social media, off of things like tweets, or even off of articles uh, in various media and newspapers, whatever, um, online that uh, they're making their own summaries from. Yeah, I think you're right about that because, of course, Back in the day, we didn't have as many opportunities to see the candidates. 
Uh, and so you now you have social media and all those other ways to see them. And before then, you had, like you had three TV channels to watch in this country, and exactly. you had to wait for the debate to really see them. Although in this case, this is the only English language debate that they're having on this campaign. So I think it's still definitely worth watching, listening to, because it's the only time you're going to hear this. Yeah, I guess it's also interesting in a debate how you get to watch a leader perform under pressure for a long time. It's almost like a durational (laughs) performance piece. They have to be so on their toes. They know the camera's on them constantly. And whereas when they're, you know, we're seeing just like a little press clip uh, online or in a news story, those are so short. What, 15 seconds, 30 seconds long? Um, They're often taken out of context. We saw uh, an incident on the plane, right, where Trudeau was uh, asked a question. And I wondered, like, oh, what happened before that? What happened after that? Um, But that's just also the nature of technology today where people can um, grab a little snapshot with a camera but then on their phone. But then when you watch a debate, you're seeing their body language in a different way. And also I was watching to see, um, I didn't watch the whole thing start to finish, but I tuned in here and there and was watching to see if certain leaders would change their demeanor, like looking for cues to see if it was genuine. Are they always smiling or? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the marathon is posture? good to watch. Yeah. Because like, oh, you're right. Body language, they they test all of that. Body language, like aggr- are they going to be aggressive? Or are they going to be, you know, more on the smiley, sunny ways like Justin Trudeau was in 2015? Um, but it's really interesting, um, Raji, this morning, Insights West just dropped a poll about BC voters, and the results are so fascinating because we've heard all through this election that, you know, BC is a three-way tie, and it's going to be very tight. It's going to come down to what's happening here. Well, the tie has changed, actually, and now they, according to Insights West, they say that if a federal election were held tomorrow, the NDP leads with 35% of decided voters in this province, wow. 33% say they would vote conservative, and only 19% at this point say they would support the Liberal Party. That's a big change. Wow. That's not what I would have guessed, say, this was to happen a year ago. So I think that what we're looking at, and you know what? That's going to flip-flop possibly Could. still, too. I mean, just everything seems so unknown. We were talking yesterday about uh, placing a vote early, and I felt like after yesterday's uh, debate that we um, – probably a lot of people would have uh, thought certain things about certain leaders and would have changed their mind because there was a tone change. There was a a different PR strategy, um, I think, for Trudeau yesterday. I think he maybe got some more tighter training on how to change his tone. Uh, He, I think, appeared a little bit um, more aggressive. And I wonder if people are going to change their opinion based upon what they saw. That's a good point. Yeah, so we'll see. That's why I think it's so critical for people to listen uh, or watch this debate tonight. It is at 6 o'clock. And I do want to hear from people if you know, whether or not they're going to be checking this out. You can email me on that. And history has shown us, Raji, that even in Canada, because I know we talk all about the U.S. and politics there, we have had knockout debates like before. There have been moments in debates that have kind of altered the perception of what's going on in an election campaign. Yeah, you know, I uh, I remember some moments. I don't remember full debates, obviously, but I remember some moments in history in watching uh, debates that have stuck with me. They've stuck with me for a long time, and they were, they were moments in which the leader was kind of like gloves off, 
Yeah. Let's really do this. You answer my hard questions right now. Um, and, and those I think are the memorable ones because when a moderator is asking a question, uh, there's almost a tendency to knock into quick uh, diplomacy mode. Yeah. But um, at times it's almost gotten personal. I can, think, I can think of two. two. Yeah, I can think of two. Of course, I am older than you. So I have been watching politics since I was little. And when I was like, we, I think it was in, must have been grade eight. Uh, it was the 1984 election, and that would be Brian Mulroney and John Turner. And there was a debate that they had, and Brian Mulroney went after John Turner on the whole issue of patronage appointments, which was a very hot topic. I remember that. And um, he he really scored points against John Turner, where he said to him, you had an option, sir. You had an option. And that line just mm-hmm. really had a huge impact. I remember that. And that really uh, was like huge for Brian Mulroney. And mm-hmm. you might remember the Jack Layton, Michael Ignatieff oh, yeah. one back in 2011, oh, yes. right? And remember, <laughs> that was the orange crush. That was in 2011 when Jack Layton made huge gains in that election in May of that year uh, and mm-hmm. really gained at the expense of the liberals. I think during that election, too, I remember that debate so well. He had been running on a lot of charisma, right? Um, there for all the perfect photo ops and whatever. And then it was at the debate where he actually threw down. And um, yeah, he called Michael Ignatieff out on his poor attendance record. Yes. And I remember at the House of Commons, and I remember being like, oh, I didn't know this was a thing. Like, I actually, um, I thought that, you know, they all had to attend a lot more than Ignatieff had, and, uh, had, and that that uh, raised That's questions the case. for me. Exactly. It turned out that Michael Ignatieff had the, quote, according to Jack Layton, worst attendance record in the House of Commons of any member of Parliament, and boy... That did not do well for Michael Ignatieff at all. No. In fact, that ended up being what led to Justin Trudeau becoming leader of the mm-hmm, Liberals, ultimately. too. So yeah. debates are critical. Raji, I know you're going to be watching tonight, aren't you? I will. I hope I hope people do turn into tune into this one because um, I really feel like at this point we need uh, leaders to get grilled on what their platforms Agreed. are. Agreed. Agreed on that. All right, Raji, we'll chat, catch up to you a little bit later. Thanks, Amy. That is our Raji Selhaya. Let me know, are you going to be watching this debate tonight? This is Mornings with Simi. Shocking story of problems within the healthcare system coming out of Kamloops that we're going to be talking about. It's about a 70-year-old woman from Kamloops who died while waiting for care in the Royal Inland Hospital emergency room. Let's find out more about this. Brett Manier broke this story. He's the host of the NL Noon Report on CHNL 610. He joins us now. Good morning, Brett. Morning, Simi. All right, so what happened here? What did you learn? Well, we learned that uh, on, uh, I guess it would have been a Tuesday night around 8 o'clock, uh, a woman went with her daughter. She was taken by her daughter to Royal Inland Emergency um, around, uh, around 8 o'clock. And uh, when they got there, she was uh, triaged and then uh, told to wait. The uh, ER was uh, slammed that day. They have a chronic sort of uh, staff shortage there that's been exacerbated lately by the pandemic. Um, and uh, around two o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, I guess uh, this is when uh, this uh, woman went uh, unresponsive, and uh, suddenly they couldn't find a ch- uh, find a pulse. She was just seated in a chair in that waiting room, and. Um, 
efforts to resuscitate her failed and she died right there in the waiting oh. room, just crumpled in her chair. So wait a minute. So six hours later, she was still sitting in a chair in the emergency room? Yes. Yes. So she had gone in uh, for uh, for stomach pains. She was triaged. She apparently, according to the daughter, uh, one of the two daughters that we've spoken to since, um, their mother did have low blood pressure. It was sort of a chronic condition with her, um, but it was nothing that wasn't uh, being managed. Right. Um, and uh, they said that she had like low potassium levels or something like that, but there's still you know, post-mortem work to be done to figure out exactly went wrong. But um, most most uh, people that I talked to who were there, who witnessed it, you know, I asked them the question, now, would it have made a difference? And the sort of the consensus I got was, well, per- perhaps if she hadn't been waiting we six don't know. hours. Yeah, you don't right? know. So what has the hospital or interior health had to say about this? Not much. Um, in fairness to them, they are their hands are really tied by the Privacy Act. Um, they they can't say much other than to say that uh, you know providing people um, access to timely care is you know important to them. There is an investigation now underway or a review to find out exactly when, uh, what went wrong here. But uh, Simi, this happens you know against the context of it's it's recently been reported up here that two thirds of their ER nursing staff over the last few months has either quit or transferred, you know, to cities elsewhere, to jobs elsewhere due to burnout. So they are chronically understaffed. This has been leading to the cancellation of surgeries. Um, I was told last night that they've now just canceled another week of surgeries at Royal Inland. Uh, that's because they're having to pull doctors out or pull nurses out of recovery rooms and put them uh, put them in, in the ER. And if you don't have recovery room nurses, then there's no surgeries. So um, it's, it's a problem that's really spiraling. And, uh, you know, this was really the worst case scenario that occurred right. uh, yesterday. So it, it, has it spiraling also because of the impact of COVID-19? I know that's been a problem in interior health. What's it yeah. been like at Kamloops? Yeah. So, so, so in right across interior health, uh, we haven't seen the kinds of numbers that uh, Kelowna has in Kamloops, but, um, but the, the issue with Kamloops and Royal Inland is that it's the catchment area for, uh, well, pretty much all of the Northern interior and also part of, uh, parts of the caribou, right? So if you're in Williams Lake or something and you have a serious problem, you are often taken to Kamloops, right? So we're catching all of the patients. We, we spoke with an emergency room physician uh, last week who told us that 13 or 12, at that time, 12 of the 17 ICU beds at uh, Royal Inland were taken up with COVID patients. Uh, they also said none of them were uh, vaccinated. Um, since then, that number has ticked up by one. So as of as of yesterday, I'm told it's now 13 out of 17 ICU beds full of COVID patients. So it, it is also impacting, um, you know, their emergency room as you get, you know, the walk-ins and that kind of thing. Okay, so that clearly has had an impact here then. Do you feel like this was a bit of a wake-up call then for health authorities there, Brett? 
I think so, because, you know, a lot of their messaging uh, thus far throughout the troubles, you know, we've reported pretty extensively on the shortages that are leading to uh, surgery cancellations. Um, And the message, not just from the Interior Health Authority, but also from the health minister has been, listen, you need to know that if there's an emergency, you don't hesitate to come uh, to the emergency room for treatment, right? And this seems to really kind of undermine that messaging. So we're yet to get an official response from the Ministry of Health on this, although I know that they are uh, working on something potentially for me here. Um, so right. we'll, we will see what they have to do, but or have to say, but yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's not helpful. It's not helpful, yeah. you know, because there is a palpable sense of fear here in Kamloops that, uh, you know, well, what are we supposed to do if, you know, somebody's having a heart attack or something like that? Yeah, exactly. I can imagine that that would scare people. Listen, Brett, thank you for telling us about it this morning. You bet. Thanks, Simi. That's Brett Manier, host of the NL Noon Report on CHNL 610 AM in Kamloops. Uh, this story is the epitome of what we are afraid of in our healthcare system because of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Royal Inland Hospital, Royal Inland Hospital has been suffering from an acute nursing shortage, especially in the ER. Approximately two-thirds of staff have reportedly quit or transferred out because of burnout that have been that has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And then you have this 70-year-old woman who showed up 8 p.m. Tuesday night complaining of stomach pains six hours later, still apparently sitting in a chair in the emergency room and had not had anything beyond being triaged when she got there and was unresponsive at that point. So yeah, there are a lot of questions about what is going on there. And I can imagine people would be afraid, like, should I be going to the emergency room? Will I get treated? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We've been asking you this morning whether or not you're going to be watching or listening to the English language leaders debate for the federal election campaign happening tonight, six o'clock our time. Last night, of course, was the French language debate. So you let me know how you're feeling if you're going to be tuning in, listening to this and whether or not you've decided how you're going to vote. Email me, simi at cknw.com. But let's talk about the whole debate situation. Joining us now is Mike LeCouture, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. So how did it go last night? It was it was a bit feistier than previous debates. Oh, a lot feistier. And, and I think uh, everybody understands that the, the stakes are a lot higher, and especially when you consider, you know, who were the main combatants in this. And it was definitely Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet. Um, 78 seats are up for grabs in uh, Quebec. It is a battleground, especially for the Liberals and the Bloc Québécois. Uh, a lot of people see the path to a possible majority through Quebec, if that is still in the cards for the Liberal government uh, or for the Liberal leader. Uh, and especially when you consider the fact that uh, the two leaders who feel most comfortable in French out of all of the five were Blanchette and Trudeau. That was evident yesterday, sparring a lot back and forth. Um, 
Not to say the other leaders were stuck on the sidelines, but they definitely were not as involved and the exchanges were a lot more fiery between Blanchette and Trudeau. Were there any kind of knockout punches, do you think, points scored that you observed? Yeah, no knockout punches, but definitely points scored. I think when you consider, um, you know, one of the exchanges between Trudeau and Blanchette, it was over cultural uh, culture and identity, and was where Blanchette uh, was basically saying to Trudeau, "If you don't believe in telling First Nations how to manage their own affairs, then why are you ta- why are you telling the nation of Quebec how to manage theirs?" Now, the, ma- the the nation of Quebec was one of those declarations that was made by the Harper government uh, to basically you know, call Quebec distinct. Uh, and so using that turn of phrase was extremely interesting and to try and make that point to Trudeau. But it clearly, um, you know, struck a nerve with him because he fired back at Blanchette and said he does not have the monopoly for speaking uh, for Quebec, uh, saying that, look, I am a Quebecer. Uh, you seem to forget that all the time that I can speak for Quebec as well. And talking about how many, uh, he had many MPs from Quebec uh, in, in his government and that they were a good voice at the table. Uh, you know, that's one of the key points in trying to fight in that province, especially since Trudeau has tried to paint the Bloc Québécois essentially as a protest party and a party uh, that doesn't have a real seat at the decision-making table. And so that is, again, what his um, what his pitch is is to Quebecers that elect more, um, you know, liberal MPs to have your voice heard in Quebec at the government table. So do you think that kind of that feistiness, that more aggressive tone is going to also be present in tonight's English debate? I think it will be, and especially from the other leaders. Uh, I mean, you see that Aaron O'Toole uh, was... I don't want to say stuck on message track yesterday, but definitely staying to those lines that he knew that would land well in French. Expect him to sort of uh, get his elbows up a bit more tonight um, as he is uh, way more comfortable um, in uh, in English. Same thing with Jagmeet Singh. Jagmeet Singh does does fairly well in French, uh, but you know, consider this for a moment. French is his third language behind English and Punjabi. So um, that is something that uh, as much as he he, you know, was was decent last night uh, and and scored, you know, maybe a couple of points here and there, or at least didn't lose any points. Uh, expect him to get more involved tonight, but definitely Annamie Paul, the leader of the Green Party, uh, she will be more engaged tonight. She she was engaged last night, but you could tell um, that she hadn't been in any other debate and she hadn't been used to that sort of big federal stage uh, of a leader's debate. She, uh, you know, noted that she had had a lot of um, of debates for the, her own leadership and that she had been used to sort of the slings and arrows of the last couple of months that she's experienced as uh, the leadership uh, continues to be uh, difficult and uh, a bit of turmoil is swirling around the Green Party. Uh, but she will be trying to make her mark tonight on that stage in English. Okay, so do we know what the, the topics are kind of going to be tonight? Yeah, so essentially um, they're similar to yesterday but different. So one of the big differences is that yesterday uh, they had foreign affairs and that doesn't look like it will be there. Uh, some of the other um, ones that we're expecting tonight, uh, you know, environment for sure, uh, pandemic spending, uh, definitely healthcare you can expect to be brought up. Uh, and any of these others, you know, if, if there's a tangent that a, uh, a leader can sort of break off from to make sure that he scores his own points, uh, you can bet that he will. Uh, so the actual themes of it are affordability, climate, COVID recovery, 
leadership and accountability, and reconciliation. Those are listed in alphabetical order, not in the order of the discussion. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see, especially with some of those, you know, where these leaders sort of take off on their own tangents to score those points that they think are important to score on a night like tonight. So important. You're right, Mike. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Michael Couture, Global National Ottawa Correspondent, talking about tonight's English language debate, 6 o'clock our time. You can listen to it right here on 980CKNW. You can watch it, of course, on Global. You can look at it online. Go to globalnews.ca for complete coverage on that. And we will be talking about it tomorrow because what we're looking for is to see if anyone will have a, a breakout moment. The selection is so tight, statistically Pretty much a dead heat at this point between the two leading parties. You've got the Conservatives and the Liberals. NDP gaining support in places like uh, the Br- British Columbia, for sure, according to the latest Insights West poll, too. So there's a lot riding on performance tonight. People, Some of the leaders will be looking for a breakout moment, for sure. Are you going to be watching or listening? Is this important to you to see them in action tonight? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, those protests against vaccine cards were back yesterday. Not as big as we saw a week before and certainly not as intensely in front of Vancouver General Hospital as we saw the week before. This time, though, very much right at 12th and Canby in front of Vancouver City Hall. So traffic was blocked in both directions at 12th and right down to Broadway. So it was fairly busy. Two weeks in a row now we're seeing this, and we know that Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart has got some thoughts on this. He joins us now to talk about it. Good morning. Hi, Sammy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Were you at least relieved that it wasn't like what we saw last week? Oh, very relieved, but still alarmed. Uh, I was at 12th and Canby. It was right outside my office window most of the protest all day. And when I hear chants of lock her up, large chants from a, you know, a sizable crowd referring to Dr. Bronnie Henry, I just, you know, these folks are just not folks that I'd like to associate with at all. Yeah, but what can the city of Vancouver do about it? Well, I mean, uh, as everybody's pointed out, there's a uh, democratic... Um, you know, right to protest, and so that's what folks are doing. Uh, they're, they're, uh, you know, we had four protests yesterday in the city, so they were one of four, and uh, I, I think folks don't know how many protests we actually have in Vancouver. Lots of them don't get per, uh, reported by media, but uh, in this case, we, we took a lot of preparations. I had talk, uh, spoken with uh, Chief Adam Palmer. They had put extra police on to make sure there was no... Uh, blockages of any um, emergency medical vehicles or uh, in front of hospitals, and also I checked with the health authority just to see what legal, uh, you know, legal steps we could take if things did uh, did escalate. But luckily, they didn't. But what I hear is they're back every week. Okay, so but have you? So you've had that conversation then with the Vancouver Police Department to make yeah. sure that we don't see what happened last week, like in front of the hospital area. Yeah, I think what happened last week was. Um, uh, in my sense, there was there was a larger organizing force uh, working on that. There, initially, we thought uh, it would be just a regular protest, which had been happening all the way through uh, the election and COVID, you know, 50, 100, 200 people, which is manageable when it grew to about 5,000. That, uh, you know, um, was surprising. And, and uh, also, I had a uh, police report saying just how aggressive the... Uh, the protesters were last week um, toward police, uh, you know, so they seem to have uh, a problem with all frontline responders, which is just unacceptable. 
Okay, so, but is there a plan now to make sure that it won't be allowed to happen kind of in the health district? Well, we, again, there is a public space where where that's where uh, protests occur. And so that is, uh, you know, that's where basically with, with protests uh, and police, it's, it's um, basically contained, you know, you kind of uh, contain, let people say their piece, and then they kind of wander off later. That's, that is the same approach. However, uh, we are prepared if we have to um, take more legal action, uh, immediate legal action to move them from in front of, say, emergency room entrance areas. Okay, so that's as you say though, like if they're going to protest in front of city hall, that's like lots of people do that, right? right. That just seems to be a protest gathering place. That's right, yeah. Long so, tradition of that. Okay, so because people were asking, well, if we're going to do something about this, what about extinction rebellion? What about other protests? So there's there is a line there. Yeah, and I mean, I've been in protests myself, but never targeted hospitals, and I think that is what makes this group different. Uh, I guess what also would make. Uh, you know, what make this group different is when you sit and listen to the, the chants that are being, uh, you know, said and uh, yelled, they're uh, directed towards individuals, they're, um, y- you know, they're violent. Uh, and, you know, I, we had a 100,000 people march across the, uh, the bridge, uh, the Canby Bridge, uh, to, to protest climate change. And, uh, you know, there's none of that going on. They're not targeting out individual politicians or public officials. Uh, and I just think that is, uh, you know, I'd be ashamed to be with that group. If, you know, and I think that's might, might have what happened last week is people that had genuine concerns about things got kind of overtaken by, you know, a fringe group of radicals. And I think that's why the numbers were lower yesterday, too, is because folks understand that they don't want to lock up Bonnie Henry. They just want to protest uh you know they don't they don't want right. a, a vaccine uh, certificate so mayor stewart then what would you say to people of vancouver who were very disheartened by what they saw last week well be proud i mean first of all of our city and all the residents here we have one if not the highest vaccination rate in the world here in vancouver uh, we're well over 90 percent, and that is just amazing uh you know we're all uh trying to support our businesses and i think doing a great job uh, whether we're visiting patios, and we've done that all the way through the pandemic. So just take a deep breath and be proud about how how the city has reacted to a very, very tough situation. Uh, and then do the best you can to uh, support that. My uh, sister-in-law is a nurse. I tell her all the time how grateful I am for her work. Uh, and I think that's what we can do is just reach out and, and uh, really try to give these folks a boost that are uh, giving so much back to us. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay. Thank you. That is Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, talking about these protests and that line that you kind of draw between what we saw last week. And he's right. Like, it's different when you're doing it in front of the hospital, impeding patients and visitors from coming and going and getting their needed health services versus protesting in front of City Hall, which, as he said, happens all the time with different groups, right? Find a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there is a great program out there that is doing amazing work. It's a volunteer cancer driver society. Essentially, they operate to help get patients to their appointments for treatments. This is a huge thing for cancer patients. If they're unable, they don't want to take transit. They'll get help, essentially, from people who volunteer to drive them for their appointments. Now, they operate in all Metro Vancouver regions, but the one in Vancouver in particular really needs your help. 
uh, to find out why. Our Raji Silhal is back with us. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I love this program because I like initiatives that pair people's skills that they already have, like driving, with a community need. And like you mentioned, some people uh, who have uh, cancer need to get treatments, do not have a way to get to the hospital. And in a frail state, it's not recommended, obviously, to take transit. But also for some people who want to do something for their community, volunteer in some way, they're thinking, what can I offer? Well, if you can drive, then you can probably do this. Uh, so the association also asks its volunteers to only drive when they're available, which is also a really great part of this. There's uh, been initiatives that I've wanted to volunteer for in the past, but my schedule doesn't match the schedule of the organization. Well, in this case, you if you provide your availability, they'll let you know when they could use your services. Oh, that's and great. actually. My uncle volunteers uh, for them, and he's done so for many years, and he actually did it um, around his regular work hours, um, and that was for many years, and now he's semi-retired and doing it some more, and he's a little bit faint of heart, like he's an empathizer, and I am one of these people who's an overly empathizing individual. You're uh, kidding me. Especially when people are going through a tough time, see me, I, <laughs> I am know. there with them. I know you are, so, yes. So I was curious, like, is this something that I could do? Uh, is it not for the faint of heart? Well, here's Bob Smith. He uh, runs the organization. There have been times when I, my heart has really gone out uh, to the, the trials and tribulations. It, you, you might be driving a, a young mother with young children with a very severe diagnosis. Uh, the treatment might have been uh, pretty... Uh, rigorous treatment, uh, you know, they're clearly not well. That is um, not the normal course of things. You meet the, that type of patient once in a while. For the most part, uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, the patients are uh, very talkative. Uh, you get their life story. Um, and, um, and they're so grateful that you were there for them. See, that's so nice. It sounds like such a rewarding experience. And yet, Raji, in Vancouver, they are desperately in need of help. Why is that? Yeah, so particularly in Vancouver. Now, they've been getting drivers from Surrey, even Chilliwack, to service the patients in Vancouver. And they're not sure why. Here's Bob Smith again. The unique situation in Vancouver has kind of uh, befuddled us. Um, and we're very optimistic that uh, we will improve the awareness of the need to be available to support your neighborhood uh, patient who uh, is in your community and uh, in need of this assistance. So essentially, they need more volunteers in Vancouver. They need more volunteers in Vancouver proper. They can't figure out why there is a shortage in Vancouver. It might have something to do with COVID uh, affecting people's ability to um, just get in their cars and help others out. Now, not a lot is required in order to volunteer for them. Uh, you do need a car and it should be one that's not, you know, really small. Um, and then beyond that, you need uh, insurance and uh, not too much else. And you can, rec they're recruiting right now and you can check out their website and uh, learn more information about how to get involved and how to help. This is such a necessary thing for people like, I don't, people often don't realize unless you've had a cancer diagnosis in your family about how, how many appointments there are, how often you have to go. And it can be difficult to plan, especially if you're relying on a loved one who is working to make all that happen. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then also there's the element of like, if you if you didn't go this route, say, for example, you just took a taxi. Well, the taxi driver is not anticipating this long conversation with you necessarily about what you just went through. It's just that the volunteer aspect of it shows that this is someone from your own community who cares about what you're going through and who wants to be a part of your care in some way and support. And I can think that, um, you know, of a few times in my life where I have had to get into a taxi or jump onto a uh, public transit. And, um, I would have rather just have been in a personal car. Um, and when I was, you know, when you're younger, when you're a student, if you are, um, someone who faces, uh, you know, physical challenges or anything like this, these, you compare that to someone who has gone through an ordeal, Cancer yeah. is an ordeal and uh, treatment is, as he mentioned there, Bob Smith mentioned there, um, you know, vigorous and really difficult for people. So I just feel like any community support uh, would be so helpful and so appreciated. It really would be. So where can people find out more information? So from the Vancouver Cancer Driver Society website, there is a bit of a screening, obviously, and I was glad to hear that um, when they do recruit people and they will um, hook you up. Now, they do actually have a lot of volunteers in the other areas. They have a lot of interest in this program, lots of people who want to help out, uh, just not in Vancouver proper. So that's what they're looking for, help in Vancouver. Right. So you can volunteer as much or as little as you want, right? Like maybe you can only do this once a week. You can you can do that. Yeah. And then they're very generous with, they know, you know, life happens, people age because a lot of their volunteers are retirees. And uh, so there is turnover. They know that people go on vacation and that kind of thing. It's actually a very easy organization to volunteer for. All right. This is a great one. So volunteercancerdrivers.ca for more information. Uh, and they, they help you out with, um, with your mileage too, don't they? Yeah, they do. They'll offer 50 cents on the kilometer. But interestingly, a lot of the people that volunteer for them donate that money right back to the organization. Aww. See, that's so yeah, nice to so hear. Nice. Okay, so let's hopefully get some more volunteers out there. Raji, thank you for that important story. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal. And listen, if you're interested, if you can help out, they are in desperate need for volunteer drivers at volunteercancerdrivers.ca. It's where you drive cancer patients to their doctor's appointments, checkups, whatever the case may be. They need people in Vancouver in particular, or perhaps anywhere in Metro Vancouver, if you'd like to volunteer your time. Check out their website, volunteercancerdrivers.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Housing and affordability, two very big issues for this federal election campaign, but it can often be hard to keep track of what all the different parties are promising, what they say they're going to do versus what realistically they likely will do. Well, there's a new way to keep track of all of that, as a matter of fact. Uh, the Generation Squeeze Research and Knowledge Translation Lab at UBC is releasing the first installment of their Federal Election Voters Guide. And this is a new study that looks at the housing promises made by the Conservatives, the Greens, the Liberals, and the NDP. Joining us now is Dr. Paul Kershaw, UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. This is a very hot topic. So how did you do this? Well, my lab has been working with experts in the community and academics across the country to develop what we call a comprehensive plan to fix the, the housing system, to restore affordability forever. And to make a long story short, our plan identifies about 15 action items that uh, we, need, we know that political parties need to take if they're really serious about restoring affordability for all. 
uh, going over each of those would be more than our six or seven minutes this morning could allow. But effectively, the point is there's no silver bullet, but there can be silver buckshot. And so we have then been looking at the degree to which the parties are offering uh, policy proposals that will align with each of those action items. And there's sort of two findings that we have. The first is that no party is proposing action on all 15 items. And so for those who are wondering, is any party doing enough to actually close this gap between really high home values and housing costs for renters and what locals earn? And the answer is probably not. Hmm. And then if you're interested in the horse race, though, we can tell you that different platforms align more with the evidence, uh, some more than the others with the evidence. And so, for instance, the liberals are proposing to do about two thirds of the action items, the greens and the NDP about one third and the conservatives about one quarter. Okay, well, let's run through the items. And what do you think would be the most effective way to address this issue? Well, we organize our 15 action items into three broad chunks. One is we know that we have to scale up non-market housing. About 5% of Canadians these days rely on housing that's below market. And it's likely we're going to need to increase that to 10 or 15 or even 20%. Uh, So that's a key thing where we need parties to talk about scaling that up. And that does tend to be something you'll hear in particular from the NDP and the Liberals and the Greens. It's less of a focus for the Conservatives. But because we're going to have, you know, the majority of people still relying on the regular market to find a rental or to try and become an aspiring owner, we do need to fix that regular market by dialing down examples of harmful demand, increasing the right supply and, and offering protections for renters. And the parties are, uh, you know, doing that in different ways. Uh, it is the case that the Conservatives have a strong focus on trying to add more supply, although they're less focused on can they really deliver it in affordable ways. The Liberals have been in power for some time and they've been, you know, been pushed on this. So you can see that they're bringing a little more sophistication into their platform than in the past. And it's that kind of newer idea for the Greens to be focusing on fixing the regular market. They're kind of quiet on that piece. Right. Cause but it's our a, biggest pr- yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Our biggest problem is that none of the parties are really wanting to take on the fact that culturally and in our government circles, we're kind of addicted to high and rising home values. High home values aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good. It all depends on when you got into the market. So I'm a homeowner, and in Metro Vancouver, I've become coming wealthier as a result of right. my higher home prices. And governments think their economies look better when real estate contributes to GDP, although I would push them to reconsider that desperately. Right. And it just seemed to me, though, that most party platforms will still cater to people who do already own a home. It is the case that you don't hear any party saying, we know that to restore affordability for all, we're going to need home prices to stall so that earnings catch up. And I think that is the, the rub where they're nervous about at telling people who become quite used to like, hey, I'm getting better off as my home prices rise. They're not willing to take on that, especially in the middle of an election, because they're not sure that's a vote winner. But while it may not be a vote winner, it is the only thing that's going to help us actually solve this problem, which we have seen get worse and worse and worse, not just over the pandemic, but decades before the pandemic. This is a long-term problem that just has been exacerbated by what's been happening during the emergency pandemic crisis. Okay, so then, Dr. Kershaw, good point there. As you said, this took us years to get here. How can we expect any next government to get us out? Well, you'd at least expect parties to say, okay, we know that we need to restore affordability for all. It can happen next year, but by 2030, it could. 
even the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has said that by 2030, that's their timeline to restore affordability for all. That's a reasonable timeline. It's actually a pretty bold goal, given how big the problem is. But you don't see any of the parties actually adopting that strict timeline. And that, I think, still reflects a sort of hesitancy that they're not sure what do they want from housing prices going forward. Do they want home prices to continue to rise? Because, yes, that makes our GDP go up, although it totally erodes affordability for so many trying to make a life in this uh, this city and across the country? Or do they want to think about promoting our economy to grow in ways that will prioritize growth that says we're going to recouple home prices to earnings so that affordability is something that allows businesses to thrive, and then we're going to grow jobs in industries outside of real estate going forward. Dr. Kershaw, the way you pointed out there, like it took us years to get into this mess. It will take us years to get out of it. And does any political party really ever think in terms of, or honestly telling us, it's going to take 10, 20 years for us to fix this problem? Well, as I said, we have seen that no one's providing a concrete timeline, so they're not wanting to be honest about it's going to take some time. But if we don't give the timeline, we're not going to start. If we don't start, we're not going to fix the problem. And we really can do this. We've seen in the pandemic how much we are willing to adapt our lives to big problems. Adapting to solve housing affordability would be a much more modest adaptation than what we've done in terms of physical distancing and disrupting our educations and jobs, etc. We can tackle this if we bring even just a fraction of our commitment to making adaptations to our system. That's what we need our parties to offer us and to cajole us into wanting to vote for. Right. Where can people read through this work that you did? Well, you can go to our GenSqueeze.ca website and go to 2021 Housing Analysis. Okay, and you're going to be doing more of this. Tell us about that. Well, we're going to come up with three more studies, one about family policy, where child care is going to be the big point of comparison. Is it going to continue to cost down the rent size payment in someone's platform? And we'll offer you that information. We're also going to look at climate change. And then we're going to look also at a broader issue of our, our parties budgeting fairly for all generations as we're trying to promote well-being from the early years onwards. And this is going to be a really interesting piece because... Parties have really stopped talking about, do we need to balance our budgets? Yeah. Um, we're, we're not talking about what kind of debts we're leaving for younger folks, either environmentally or fiscally. And we're not focusing on how these platforms are really talking about trying to win votes with disproportionate spending later in the life course. You might have thought childcare was like some of the biggest things we're talking about. It's absolutely swamped by what we're proposing to do for medical care later in our lives, old age security, important things. My mom draws on them, but she wants to do important things for her kids and grandchildren. And the platforms are quite weak on that. Yeah, I'm fast at my ears immediately perked up when you said that, because that is something that I feel like we're not talking enough about. Nobody talks anymore about balanced budgets and leaving that debt for future generations. Canadians have become an electoral culture where we want our parties to say, we'll give you more without asking you to figure out how to pay for it in ways that are fair across classes, fair across age group, fair across you know, races, et cetera. And this is a challenge for us going forward. I don't know when Canadians became, I want more, but I'm not willing to pay for it. But unfortunately, that's what the political parties are picking up on. And it risks leaving large debts for our kids and grandchildren, either environmentally and or fiscally. And it makes me not only worried, but increasingly vexed. It just shouldn't be the Canadian way. That's not what I think Canadians want to do. It's not how we organize our households. Uh, it makes me frustrated at how we incentivize our politicians to act. I look forward to reading more about that, too. So, Dr. Kershaw, thanks for joining us. 
My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Paul Kershaw. He's a UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze. It's the Generation Squeeze Research and Knowledge Translation Lab at the uh, UBC School of Population and Public Health. So they're releasing these federal election voters' guides on different topics. The new one is about housing, it, housing and affordability. It is out, but in the in the future, they're also going to have one that talks about all these different issues of party platforms. I think it's really fascinating stuff to check out.